The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome again, everyone. Um, I'd like to share a few reflections this morning about a feature of this practice that I've been contemplating lately. I've been experiencing how much ease is available to us as practitioners the more we are aligned with the virtue of truth. And I'm thinking of it as resting in the truth and finding it a delightful, powerful practice. So what I'm referring to here is more than simply speaking honestly, which is, of course is really important for us, Um, to learn that strength, not just speaking the truth, but avoiding exaggeration or distortion, like little white lies, omitting information, avoiding saying something that needs to be said. Um, These dimensions of commitment to the truth are um, not to be taken for granted. And I'm guessing we each go through a journey of discovery with honesty as our practice develops. Um, there are dilemmas that are not so simple with this. Um, for example, do we tell other people everything we think? No. <laughs> and when we don't say what we're thinking, when does that become untruthful? So naturally, we don't say everything we're thinking because we don't want to cause harm with some of our less than wholesome thoughts. Um, why speech involves important guidelines of speaking in such a way that it brings people together and speaking when it's timely. Someone I'm close to was discussing a related dilemma with me just this past weekend. So a longtime casual friend of hers had confided to her in recent years in what seemed like a very offhanded way that she's an alcoholic. My close friend said she had actually observed that this person was drinking an entire bottle of wine every evening. And and she was a little puzzled over what the person was wanting or needing. Now, recently, after urging my friend to take a vacation with her, um, this, this casual friend had responded to an email about possible places to stay in a very brusque and non-typical fashion, saying, not for me, good luck, almost as if she were canceling the vacation plans she had initiated and had been urging. So it seemed so out of context with the rest of their emails that my close friend was wondering whether the email had been sent when this casual friend was under the influence of alcohol. And when she did mention the content of the email, the casual friend did not remember sending it at all and said that recently she was wondering if she was beginning to experience Alzheimer's. So my friend was debating in her discussion with me whether or not to say her feelings had been hurt and that she was now kind of wanting to cancel their vacation in retrospect, in retrospect, she was really wondering what this casual friend was expecting or wanting. 
um, if anything, when she had disclosed her alcoholism or, you know, mentioned, gee, I'm wondering if I'm suffering from Alzheimer's, you can imagine that this is just one example of times when we're not sure how much truth the other person is ready to hear or where we're treading in a delicate area that could hurt someone else deeply or somehow not help. So I'm sure each of you could cite a whole lot of situations in which you've experienced speech that was perhaps not timely and did not bring people together, even though somebody thought they were telling the truth. So maybe you've witnessed um, the way people can use what they may, may call truth-telling in punitive ways or in harmful ways. Um, sometimes it's called brutal honesty. In addition, you've probably experienced times that people misled or avoided truth that needed to be discussed. So truth and honesty are not a simple area of human interaction. However, you've probably also had the experience that when we are truthful or honest in our interactions with others, whether they're close to us or total strangers, it offers a clear conscience and it feels much more peaceful to be without any internal concerns about having misled another person or avoided a painful truth or been ashamed to tell the truth or used the way we said something in such a way as to get the result we wanted or avoid the conflict we dislike. So even the tiniest area about, you know, where we doubt our interactions leads to less internal peace. And even if we're not conscious, conscience of, sorry, conscious of it during a sitting, for example, things that are in the backs of our minds or sitting in our unconscious minds make for less peaceful sittings and less um, harmonious daily life practice. So all that said, I've been reflecting on ways the practice of commitment to the truth in our lives manifests when we are in sitting meditation. So what I'm seeing is that we can rest deeply in meditation in the truth. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that truth is simple or that there aren't areas of life that are um, unjust deserve our attention, deserve our activism. But what I'm seeing is that a way we can rest deeply in reality or in the truth is embodied in this very sitting practice we've been doing of receiving what's present no matter what it is. Not trying to have a good meditation or the right kind of practice and not insisting in some way that what we receive in awareness during a sitting has to be pleasant or even wholesome. You know, as we develop in this practice, of course we aspire to embody what's wholesome. And we try to make choices in that direction when we're able. But we're also cultivating receiving what is actually here and being uh, truthful with ourselves about what's coming up, even when we don't like it. (laughs) So sometimes we know what's arising is a hindrance, for example. And when that happens, it's not only truthful to receive it exactly as it is, 
it's actually also onward leading in our practice. So I love what Gil Fronstahl says about our practice. He says, the quickest way to get from point A to point B is to be fully at point A. I found that to be true. And I noticed Ajahn Suchito wrote, enlightenment is a matter of getting real. I love that. (laughs) The more we can get real, the more we can rest in reality. Even if it's unpleasant, even if we want to change it. So it's actually restful and a relief not to fight with what's actually happening in our awareness. Um, and this is especially true if, like me, you're a recovering over-efforter. Or if you tend to judge yourself, including your practice. Perhaps there's been some way in your practice in which you fought what was present in your efforts to practice better or even to be a good Buddhist. Um, something, some of us may, may fight things on the level of concept, actually. We think we know how meditation is supposed to be or how practice is supposed to be. And then we try to make our meditation or our experience match that. I had one practice discussion with Gil once on a retreat. It was a group practice discussion. And, um, he, I, I shared what, a question I had, and he said, I'm not going to tell you the answer because I'm afraid you'll try to make your experience match that. And it was like, oh, he's right. I do that. So our ideas are rarely perfect models for how things actually play out. Ideas about how things should be tend, in a way, not to be kind or compassionate towards how experience actually does unfold. Others of us might fight our experience by struggling emotionally, consciously or unconsciously. We don't quite know why, but we're not feeling peaceful or comfortable sometimes when we meditate. There's just some sense that something is not quite right. However, um, we come to learn that the best way to work with unwholesome thoughts speech and action, the best way to work with hindrances is to fully experience how they feel in the body, heart, and mind. We come to learn through living through all of that and all of the unwanted consequences. Um, So we, at some point, stop fighting with ourselves and get curious about you know, what is unwholesome, kind of acknowledging them just the way they are, and then seeing that by going through them directly, it's the way we grow in freedom. So very few of us, if any of us, are deliberately trying to do things that are going to make ourselves or others unhappy. Usually there's just some aspect of some pattern that we don't clearly understand yet. And experiencing it, plus the in-the-moment awareness of it, teach us about parts of ourselves and patterns we haven't understood yet. 
Um, it certainly takes a while, like maybe a few years or decades, to understand how things actually are and to see the contrast with how we, how we wanted things to be, how we didn't want them to be, or how we're deluded as to their nature. For example, how many of us here have experienced some surprise or even shock with some of the events of the last six years? Um, for one thing, things that happened during the pandemic may have taught some of us that we had deluded assumptions about how human health worked. We had deluded assumptions about how an outbreak would be able to be cared for in our healthcare system. Medical professionals in the healthcare system were certainly not deliberately trying to make anybody unhappy. Um, quite the opposite, they were working day and night trying to understand and treat the pandemic. In addition to that, no matter what your beliefs, um, what has happened politically in the U.S. in recent years seems to have exposed deeper divisions uh, and conflicts than we may have believed were there, even around the nature of what a democracy or a republic might mean and how the system of government is supposed to operate. So we could say some of us are shocked to learn how things actually are and how it doesn't match our ideas. Um, I don't think most people living in this country are deliberately trying to make each other unhappy, but they are passionately expressing very different views of how things are and should be. So this arena of views is another area where we have opportunities to discover how on earth to rest in the truth. When we can recognize views and opinions for what they are, which is mental constructions or kinds of mental fabrications, and when we can differentiate those from what is actually happening, including many other ways to view reality, we can suffer less and find more freedom. I've witnessed so many examples of this over the years. Um, at work, at volunteer activities, in close relationships, and probably you have too. So in a former career, I was a designer and I managed a graphic designer. I managed design teams. We'd be given a project and we'd develop several different designs to address whatever the need was. We'd present the strongest solutions we had, you know, multiple ones. And oftentimes the client had trouble choosing between them. You know, the truth was they all worked just fine in a way. And it could be painful, certainly, if one designer felt like they had lost some kind of competition with another designer's idea. And other times the client would ask us to combine all the solutions into one design. And that, that doesn't always work out so well. It can end up looking like a, a person would if they were dressed by multiple people with totally different tastes and had to wear all those sets of clothes. Um, in volunteer work, I've seen how two intelligent, very capable people can have two very different ways they want things to be done. And I've watched as people get into conflict over that. What's been interesting is that either way of doing things a number of ways of doing things work out well, but how passionately we human beings can come to identify 
ourselves or our self-worth with whether or not things are done the way we think they should be done. One of the biggest areas of suffering we encounter is that of our self-identification. We identify with our ideas as if they were proof of our value. We identify with our personalities as if they were a fixed, unchanging kind of thing. We identify with our experiences as if they say something about us, about our worth in society. And we suffer from interactions sometimes as if they were proof of belonging or not belonging to a particular group or even to the human race when it's really excruciating for people. So we can identify with all these different things. Um, We can even identify with our meditations, our assessment of how well or not well we think we're progressing in mindfulness practice, as if it were indicative of our merit. So some of us suffer from what's called a negative self-conceit, where we take all these forms of identification as proof of we're not good enough. And others of us suffer from a kind of conceit that struggles with how inadequate other people are. (laughs) If only they would just behave better or comply with what we know is best. So we can come to a place, though, I think, that discovers all of this is dukkha. This way that humans are conditioned and then suffer. Um, And we can instead rest in the truth or the reality that no matter what events, views, personalities, and interactions occur, they reflect a reality that's sort of the sum or the net effect of conditioned experience. Your conditioning, my, my conditioning, cultural conditioning. And we can rest in the truth that none of that needs to be identified with as me, mine, or this self. Of course, we have the healthy aspiration in our Dharma practice to choose wholesome behaviors and to move towards freedom from suffering and stress. And that can be separated from self-judgment. We can rest in the truth that we are here. We are each a phenomenon of nature. We're a fact. No one, not even we ourselves, ourself, is in the position to ultimately judge that. We're here. We're interacting with others and with conditions on the planet. And we're each having the ripple effect that goes with that. So it may sound odd, but we can rest in that truth. So uh, thank you for your kind attention to what I've shared. And uh, I'll just say, may these reflections result in some ease and rest in the practice for you. May you each appreciate yourselves for the good intentions and aspirations that bring you to mindfulness practice. And may this contribute to your own freedom and freedom for others around you. So 